This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Money is uh, probably on our mind a little more than it should be, but you can't really do much about that right now. We're, uh, we're far beyond that. A British company, I think you pronounce it Hivivo. Now, we did a lot of looking into this because the first place we found it kind of made you think, okay, is this legit? And then all of a sudden we dug in and, and we looked around and we found it from some pretty reputable UK sources. And so it is a report, let's call it that right now. But it still lends itself to an interesting moral question among humans. The British company Havivo, H-V-I-V-O. And if you go to their website, they will say that they are an industry-leading services provider in viral challenge studies and laboratory services supporting product development for customers, developing antivirals, vaccines, and respiratory therapeutics. Okay, that's right on their website. They are reportedly offering people the equivalent of $4,500 hour money to inject you with the new coronavirus, COVID-19, and then just kind of put you in a room, it looks like, and watch you. You would live in quarantine for two weeks in Whitechapel, London, UK. So I don't know if we qualify. I don't think we do. It, it, would, it would almost cost you $4,500 to get there and back on short notice. So I don't think this is a moneymaker for us. But... There are going to be people who do this, aren't there? Now, they have apparently stated that, oh, it's not the more aggressive version of COVID-19. This is the less aggressive version of COVID-19. But we just want to see how things go. Uh, Yeah, yeah, right. This is why people cheat. You put money, you put a price tag on something. Now, this isn't cheating. You might be cheating yourself out of life. But it's this kind of attitude that helps to explain the Houston Astros. There were 27 people charged in Manhattan in a, an international scheme that has been going on to inject horses with different drugs to try and make racehorses faster. So that's going on. And why does that happen? Well, the horse racing industry is worth about, what, $10 billion? It's massive. It is absolutely massive. One of the horses that was injected apparently just won a race in Saudi Arabia that had a $10 million purse to it, the biggest race in the world. So that's why people go after that sort of thing, which is why when you're actually trying to create a vaccine – You need to have kind of a watchdog. And I don't know if you saw it on Friday, but Western University is becoming one of those watchdogs. They've been given grant money to do it. And joining us right now is Professor Maxwell Smith, who is a professor in the Faculty of Health Science at Western University, to talk about the ethics component of this. And Professor Smith, maybe we start with how you handle the urgency that appears to exist in the willingness of people to do all sorts of things in the interest of trying to find a way to combat COVID-19. Very carefully and in a coordinated manner. So we've got a lot of researchers, a lot of regulators, a lot of people generally who want to produce a vaccine or therapies as rapidly as possible. 
And with so many people working uh, at cross purposes, we want to make sure we coordinate that and make sure we navigate the processes that we need to in the most rapid and ethical fashion possible. And so with that, we need solidarity and working together. And so the World Health Organization is currently playing a role to coordinate all research efforts in order to do that. And if we're looking at something that kind of affects everybody on the globe, how exactly do you coordinate every country and all their different regulations and all their different abilities? It's certainly tough, but the good thing is we have a bit of precedent with this. So um, with SARS, with H1N1 influenza, and with the Ebola virus disease outbreak between 2013 and 16, we have had the world uh, and the world's researchers come together to try to develop vaccines and therapies. So with Ebola, for instance, um, we saw a, a rapid, rapid production of a vaccine, even though it took several months to get a clinical trial started and a few years to get a vaccine licensed. That was unheard of at the time. And so what we can do is look back and see what worked well, what didn't work well, and, and try to apply those lessons to this current context so that we can produce a vaccine or therapy as rapidly as possible. And, I mean, there's a, the word rapid. People want something here just because of all of the discussion that goes on. But producing something like that, I mean, this, this is not a thing we should be hoping for in a, a rapid way. Is it you want it done right, correct? Absolutely. I mean, uh, if, if everyone was coming at this for the first time, then we might have to worry about that, I think. But, you know, we, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, great thinkers, great researchers, great companies who are willing to mix their labor to make sure that we do this right. And I think where the corners get cut is when we don't have that coordination and that we don't have some oversight to make sure that we're doing this in the most ethical manner. So that's part of the research that I'm doing is to make sure, you know, the the ethics review that we do of these studies and making sure that the products, the vaccines or therapies that we produce are distributed in the most equitable and fair manner actually occur. So fortunately, we're at those tables and we're having those discussions. So I'm quite confident that we'll be, be able to do this rapidly as well as ethically. Max Smith joining us, professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. As we talk about a project looking into the ethics underlying all kinds of quick research and development as they look at creating coronavirus treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. So how do you go about keeping an eye on things? What sorts of things are, are you doing specifically? So there's a couple different things. One is a research project that, uh, as you've mentioned, I was just funded by the Canadian government to look at those lessons we learned from the Ebola virus uh, outbreak in 2013 to 16 and the the processes that were navigated in order to develop vaccines and and therapies in that context. So that's one one way that um, I'm trying to keep my eye on this. The other um, the, the World Health Organization has developed a rapid response where researchers come together and are coordinated to think through what are the priorities that we need to address quickly uh, as, a, as a global community. And I'm, I'm an invited expert to the World Health Organization uh, as part of that process to make sure that the research that we are conducting is the sort of research that is responding as quickly as possible to the, the world's priorities in this area. You get to talk with a lot of people who are dealing directly with either research for COVID-19 or with the World Health Organization. One of the things that we're inundated with, and, and you can't help but get caught up in it, is the reporting going on, the amount of news, the concern that seems to be rising. Now you look at things in Washington State. When you're talking with people, level of concern. I mean, is, every, is everybody, you know, handling this as, hey, don't, don't necessarily go off the deep end on this. We'll get this done. 
Yeah, a level-headed approach is, is certainly warranted here. I mean, it depends on where in the world you're situated. If you're in the epicenter in Wuhan, China, you should have different concerns than you would in Canada, for instance. In Canada, we still have a limited number of cases. It's very difficult to communicate to people that we need to be prepared. This is something that's prudent. It's good planning without scaring them at the same time and, and uh, suggesting that we need to panic. And that's a very fine balance to, to meet. So I think that, you know, all of the messaging saying that we need to be washing our hands, that, you know, if you're sick, uh, try not try to isolate yourself. These are all good policies that needn't mean we need to panic. It just means we need to be a little bit more cognizant uh, in this context. Because we talked about Friday's announcement where, you know, you've got a grant of a substantial amount of money, almost $300,000. You've got two projects and there's there's 26 million collectively going to 47 research teams. And you think, whoa, whoa, whoa. But these are things we don't get to hear about all the time. We, we've got research grants being given out every day. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, the, the anomaly here is how quick it happened, um, and that's, that's certainly not the norm. Usually these things take, take months uh, to produce and uh, adjudicate. Um, but, you know, the, we need to do this stuff rapidly if we want to mount an effective and contextually sensitive response to this thing. So I think that speaks to the commitment of the Canadian government and the, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to make sure that, you know, if we do have taxpayer money going to fund important research, let's make sure it has the best impact as possible. And that's what they're trying to do by having this research being funded so quickly. Professor Max Smith joining us from the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. And I guess one last thing, and that is when developing what we need to have here, a vaccine or a treatment, people wonder about time frame. Is there a time frame or can it be pretty wide ranging? I think it, be, it can be pretty wide-ranging. It depends, of course, on you know, whether the products that are being developed turn out to be safe and effective. Um, I, you know, the, the figures you hear are between a year and a year and a half, and I think that, that sounds reasonable. Um, sometimes you see uh, if products are rapidly found to be safe and effective, um, then they, they may be used even quicker than that before they become licensed, and those are the sorts of questions that require ethical scrutiny. Um, I, I mean, I, I still think, you know, it's great to see that we would have a vaccine or a therapy, but I think uh, our standard public health measures that we put in place, isolating yourselves if you're sick, coughing into your arm, washing your hands, trying not to touch your face, are at this point the best uh, mechanisms we can put in place to make sure that we curb the spread of this virus. Excellent. Well, Professor Smith, keep up the great work. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Mike. Western professor Maxwell Smith, professor in the Faculty of Health Science at Western University. The game of politics is just that. It is a game. It's a tough game. And it's one that, unfortunately, has a greater impact on all of us than maybe we'd like it to. But... It's what we have. It's what we have to maintain a democratic society. And for all intents and purposes, it doesn't work too bad. Could it be better? Yes. Yes, it could. And there are a lot of things that Kate Graham pointed out in leading up to the Ontario Liberal Leadership Convention that kind of focused in on that. 
And we have an opportunity to catch up with Kate right now. She did not win over the weekend, but I do think she deserves a big congratulations for everything that she has done and promoted and pushed and all of those sorts of things leading up to this. Kate, the first thing we've got to do, though, is look back over the last few months. It's pretty easy to feel that life can get really, really busy. But yours, yours really has been for months. Uh, it's six months almost exactly, actually. Yeah, it's been uh, phenomenal. So I've traveled about 30,000 kilometers around Ontario in the last six months, um, sometimes doing speaking events, you know, five and six times a day in different communities, uh, all the while um, pregnant for at least the last four months of it. So it's been an absolutely wild ride that concluded with the convention this weekend, but truly like a just phenomenal experience that I'm really grateful to have had. Being on the road as much as you are, was there ever a moment when you looked into your suitcase or your purse and said, folic acid, I'm out of folic acid, and had to go find some? <laughs> uh, there, there were lots of, you know, pit stops at Sharp Strike Mart and other places along the way. Uh, you know, you find out that you're going to a fancier event than you, than you thought, and you need to pop in and get something. So, yes, lots of learning on the road, that's for sure. What has the experience overall been like for you in terms of, you know, being able to kind of take this on? Well, I mean, this started for me with, um, you know, kind of a big dream. I'm, I'm pretty fed up with politics generally, and uh, I think a lot of people feel the same way. And this is a party that, you know, had the worst election uh, results in its history, burned to the ground, and will rise up into something quite different. And so I wanted to help shape what that looked like. And so, you know, a lot of people from the beginning said, you know, it's such a long shot and you've, you're the youngest in the race. You're from outside the GTA. You're not a former cabinet minister. You know, who do you think you are doing this? And, uh, and yet the campaign picked up steam every step of the way. We ended this convention in a spot that I think a lot of people were surprised with how well we did. You know, 450 volunteers across the province. We had hundreds of people there this weekend to vote for us and the experience of standing on stage and getting to talk about that big dream, about how politics needs to change. It was truly phenomenal. So, you know, even though I didn't win, uh, I still do believe that I had a chance to say some things that need to be said about changes that we need in the party and in the province. And for that, I am very, very grateful. We are talking with Kate Graham, who is just heading back now from the Ontario Liberal Leadership Convention. And you you did yourself proud. You did everybody who you've ever been associated with proud. But how exactly did you not hear all of those boxes at the beginning where not from the GTA, too young, too this, not enough of this, maybe not much of that? Uh, how did you not look at that and say, you know what, maybe this isn't a good idea? Well, I mean, there are lots of examples around the world that I find pretty inspiring. Um, you know, Greta Thunberg's not waiting her turn. Uh, Jacinda Ardern didn't downsize her dreams about becoming Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's not getting in line. I think when people want to see something change, they have an obligation to do something about it. And so for me, you know, I wanted to know that if there's something that I care about, that I was willing to go all in to make it happen, just give it my all. So... So we went for it, and I'm glad I did. Well, you certainly you you drew attention even from people who maybe weren't following the race overly closely by getting up on stage and uh, how do I say it? Uh, letting your personality be your personality. I, I was surprised at how it was a very honest speech. I talked about you know wearing maternity tights. I swore, which I guess has not been done in a leadership convention speech uh, ever. I sang at the end, which was a bit of an impromptu decision. 
so yeah, I, I tried to just say what I think needed to be said and be as real as possible. And, you know, people can take it or leave it. And the reaction has just been amazing. I think in the last 48 hours, you know, there's been like tens of thousands of people have taken a look at that video, particularly the swearing. That seems to be the part that got the most attention. So I'm glad that uh, that I had the guts to just say it in the moment. But at the same time, politics is a game. Is there a way to change the way that it works now from what you have been through in the last six months? Can we have hope that it stops being the game that it is? I think we have to. I mean, we we built this system, right? This is not the only way that politics can be done. I talked a lot in the speech. I think people are totally turned off when parties seem, you know, really self-interested. It's all about winning elections. The hyper-partisanship that's, you know, our party has all the best ideas and the others don't, you know, the others are to be feared or we should be afraid of them. You know, during this campaign, I put out a health platform, for example, that included ideas from the last Green, the last NDP, the last Conservative, and the last Liberal platform because they were good ideas and I don't care where they came from. And I want to see more of that. So I think it's going to take, you know, it may take some time. It's going to take people who say enough, you know, if there are things that are turning people off, we need people in there who are committed to changing them, which is exactly why I ran and why I, you know, even after a defeat this weekend, remain really committed to seeing those kind of changes in the province of Ontario. We're talking with Kate Graham, who is on her way back from the Ontario Liberal Leadership Convention from this past weekend. If you have not seen her speech, I'll make sure and tweet it out so that you get an opportunity to at least... <laughs> is is there somewhere that I should be getting it from? I wonder where I get Because I don't just want, hey, look what was said by Kate Graham. I want, I want the whole thing. Like you said, you know, you got up there, you kind of spoke from the heart, you you injected music at the end. I mean, this is good. We need more of this stuff. <laughs> I can send you a link if you'd like to share it. Um, yeah, it's, I'll send you a link that has lots of commentary of people reacting, especially to the swearing at the end. It's pretty funny. Okay, love it. All right, well, we'll definitely <laughs> share that. Now, in terms of, you know, of getting to where you want to go, is this uh, an opportunity where you say, okay, I'm, I'm just willing to do this all again, or is there a different avenue that, that you see could work? Uh, yeah, I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards and who I think were pretty excited about some of the ideas of the campaign. Politics is a long game, and I am in this for the long haul. I learned a lot through this experience. I am excited to contribute uh, inside the party for the next little while, but also in other ways. You know, the reason I'm not heading home till today is I, I did a keynote this morning for International Women's Day uh, with a group of business leaders, and, you know, I'm teaching, I'm doing all kinds of things that are continuing to push this conversation about politics. So that's going to continue to be my focus. And one way or another, I have a feeling that uh, that this weekend was more of a beginning than it was an end. But, but time shall tell. That's good to hear. Now, in terms of having Stephen Del Duca at the helm, do you have any comment on what you feel that will do for the Liberal Party? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, um, from the start, for me, this has been about a lot more than who our next leader is. You know, really a leadership race is a chance for a party to ask big questions about who we are and what we stand for. And, you know, Stephen and I had uh, different visions in this race about the party, but, you know, there were a lot of things that we certainly agree on from a policy perspective. And he and I have had a number of good conversations uh, even since the convention wrapped up. So, yeah, I'm excited to see where he takes the party. Um, But And as I said, I'll continue to stay involved both inside and outside the party.
Good stuff. Well, things hopefully will slow down a little bit as you head on in your pregnancy. Best of luck with everything there, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking again in the future. Again, Kate, congratulations. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Kate Graham, on her way back from the Ontario Liberal Leadership Convention that was held this weekend. So you see what I mean? You know, a beginning, politics being a long game, all of those things that you do here. But it is time for us to swing back the other way a little bit. You know, just because somebody is part of a different party does not mean that they get ignored or shouted down. And we've been doing that long enough. You know, it's, and it's gotten to a point where it's silly. It really is. And we're not advancing anything in just voting along party lines. You're just protecting the party. Now, how do you, how do you change that? I don't know. You know. I don't have a good answer for changing that because this is what it's evolved into. But that's what we've got to find a way through. And I think it just takes, you know, maybe there is a way to change it. You know how to change it? You get enough people into the game who are not willing to play the game that way. Now, there are a lot of people who talk about doing that and then you get into the game of politics and you realize, yeah, this is not going to work. I got to play it like everybody else is playing. But you get enough people in there at the same time who are willing to make changes. That's how you change things, right? It's a hard way to do it. But it's really the only way to do it. We want to look at cost of living. Because if you talk with somebody who is young, coming out of school, let's say, and you're looking at owning a home, it's tough. Even renting is tough. And then if you go to a big city like Toronto, owning and renting is off the charts. So where does this leave people? And that becomes a pretty interesting thing to look at. Jamie Morocker is a digital broadcast journalist with Global News and has been looking at this story and joins us now. Jamie, how are things this afternoon? <laughs> Depressing. Yeah, that's you've been dealing with a lot of numbers that you must have to go home with at the end of the day and and kind of erase from your memory. Yeah, I I am one of these people. I am in downtown Toronto. My husband and I make what you would consider um, a very good living, but we are in this weird spot where when you factor in, you know, rent, daycare, um, travel, loans that you have from school, all those things it becomes extremely difficult to save to own a home. So we went out and kind of, we, you know, we've done tons of stories on, on low-income housing, um, sorry, low-income and the issue of affordability here in Toronto. And we know that is a major issue. But I wanted to know if the middle class or upper middle class or those who consider themselves in that range are struggling as well. And it appears that even if you make around $100,000 per person in Toronto, it's difficult to save to buy a home, if not impossible. And the couple that we profiled today, they got approved for an $850,000 mortgage. This is their first home that they're buying, $850,000. They each make around $100,000 a year, and they have been searching for a year and have been consistently outbid, outpriced, and now they've decided, you know what, we've hit a point now where the average home in Toronto whether it be a condo or a house, is going for around 900000 That's the projection for 2020. So they have to leave. Leave? They leave Toronto? To leave if they, yeah, if they want to buy something. 
they're going to have to leave. You know what? And the numbers that we throw around, like the idea that we could have a household income of two hundred thousand dollars which sounds like you should be dancing and taking trips every second weekend the idea that that right there getting you approved for an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollar mortgage and again eight hundred and fifty thousand wow how many houses are we buying and not able to find it i mean that that just sounds almost ridiculous but it's not no and even um more disheartening for this couple in particular so they spent the last year looking in their area the junction area of toronto and they've been priced out, like I said. So they finally said, forget it. We're going to move to the 905 and we're going to start looking in Mississauga. They've gone every weekend, I think since December, and they have been outbid every single weekend. This is crazy. Oh, it is just nuts. Now, to add a little bit of insult to injury, in a lot of cases, you have to remember, we're, we're going to speak to a student. So she wanted to stay. She got a great job. She did everything right. She was paying only $700 in rent, saving all of her money. She got um, a, a job offer as a French teacher right out of school um, that paid what should be a living wage in Toronto, around $65,000. Now becomes the issue that she says she'll never be able to own because she has all of her uh, looming school loans. And most of the studies and research and projections about what you could make to live comfortably in Toronto don't take into account loans, travel, um, you know, saving for a home if you want to rent and save for a home. So while at a baseline, one study we looked at said it takes 55000 to rent in Toronto and 100000 to buy, that actually isn't realistic whatsoever. It takes much more on both ends. So what you're finding is, yeah, you could do it for 50000 if you want to rent, or you could do it for 100000 but you're not doing anything else in life ever. You sit in the dark. Exactly. So for this student, she said that she um, opted to take a job in Guelph instead, and she's going to move there because eventually she'll be able to pay off her loans and buy a place, which is, you know, a goal of hers because she's quite responsible. And then... Um, Another uh, person that we spoke with, he actually owns his condo, okay? So he is in the market. He got in the market early in 2015 or 2016. He bought his condo, um, and he moved to Paris. So he rented out his condo while he was living in Paris. He came home um, in 2018, and he said when he came home, he didn't want to kick his renters out. He wanted to just look for his own place to rent and keep his renters. But he was so shocked at how expensive the market had gotten that he wasn't able to afford anything beyond his own mortgage, so he had to keep his renters out. He moved back into his place. He says two years later, he can't believe how much more money he has to spend here in Toronto to live, like how little his budget stretches versus how much further he could get it to stretch in Paris, France. <laughs> we are talking mean? <laughs> we're talking with Jamie Barocker, who is a digital broadcast journalist with Global News, and we're looking at living in Toronto. So you've outlined so many wild things, but at the same mm-hmm. time, then you're a great person to ask this question of what is it that attracts people to Toronto if it's like this to try and live there? I think it's the people who either, you know, they grow up here or, you know, they get an amazing job here. Like we said, a $100,000 a year job is or should be considered a great paying job. Um, it's just for a lot of people, they don't realize how little that's going to go. Now, if you let's talk about that couple one more time. So they each have great tech jobs. The tech jobs just happen to be downtown. Um, about a year and a bit ago, they had a baby. 
So they're living in one bedroom plus den with a 14-month-old while they house hunt. And all of their money, other than rent, so they pay about 1800 in rent, is going to daycare. Their daycare costs are $2,700 a month. That, okay. <laughs> You're just adding another wrinkle onto all of this. Yeah. So 2700 Wait a minute. 2700 yeah. a month? A month. That's over $30,000 a year in daycare. And that's just the going rate? So the going rate um, runs around um, $1,800 to around $3,000, depending on where you can get in, what's in your area, where you live. Now, those lower, you know, $1,800 daycares, those go quickly, and those are usually um, more community-based programs, all licensed, that sort of thing. Then you have to put yourself on a wait list. And if you don't get off that wait list, usually all that's left is the premium daycares. So in my area, for example, the daycare closest to my house, other than a Montessori school, is $2,100 a month. So you tack that on plus rent. And rent in my area ranges between $2,300 for a one-bedroom to $3,500 for a two-bedroom, maybe even more. That's one person's salary completely gone, plus you're dipping into the second person's salary. That's if you make $100,000. Yeah, which sounds like a, just a phenomenal amount of money to begin with. Yeah, I mean, six-figure. remember when six-figure job was what everybody strives for? Well, it still creates, it, it gives us the sunshine list publicly. You don't even get on the yeah. sunshine list unless you make 100000 and that's where people say, oh, look at all those people making 100000 and now you're telling us that 100000 basically covers off daycare and rent in Toronto, <laughs> Ontario. And that is it. So that's why people, I think, are opting to leave. Um, there's not, the other thing is when you're within a certain range, you don't qualify for subsidies, so there's not a lot of government help, so you can't turn to that. Not, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't be able to, but in other countries, in Paris, in France, for example, um, it kind of doesn't matter what you make. The subsidies are for everybody. They're universal. So if for transit, for example, they pay often 50% of your transit if you are employed, um, whereas here you're paying $156 for a monthly Metro Pass. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of little things that add up. Um, not saying that you couldn't do it, but I think, in my opinion, after doing this this whole series, and it's four days worth of people that we're going to speak to, you should be able to, if you're approved for an $850,000 mortgage as your first mortgage, and you make a family income of around 200000 you should be able to afford a place. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a lot to ask. To tell you the truth, I don't think that's a lot to ask at all. So, with you and and maybe your circle of friends, is there a lot of talk about? Yeah, we may work downtown, or we may work in basically Metro Toronto. Is there a lot of talk about? Well, how long would we be willing to commute? And let's find a place outside. Most of the people who have had kids have moved outside. To be totally honest, within my circle of friends, just because it becomes more affordable, especially with the daycare costs. So daycare costs across the GTA are quite high. Um, if we're talking about couples who live down here and work down here, most of them just suck it up. They pay the exorbitant mortgage. They are hanging on by a thread. If those mortgage rates, or those interest rates rather, go up, they don't know what they're going to do. And I think a lot of people are in that scenario. Um, and it's a scary scenario to, to be looking at. So... I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I spoke to a lot of experts. They didn't have any solutions. CMHC actually said to me, they used to tell people, 
your your starter home is actually a condo in Toronto, so you have to wrap your head around that. With condo prices averaging $700,000, they said they can't even tell people that. How can you tell somebody that a starter home price is $700,000? You can't. Now, in a world of supply and demand, you would think, and we've been waiting for this to happen for a long time, in other words, waiting for some sort of bubble to burst, you would have to think, well, if no one is able to meet that you know, that demand that is there, that the supply would go up and everything kind of evens itself out. It's not happening. No, because we have a lot of investors who come in. So I also asked about this. Well, then who's buying these homes? For the most part, especially when we're looking at the condo market, it's investors who come in with a big lump sum of cash. You know, they sweeten the pot for whoever is selling and that knocks out any person in the middle class or upper middle class. Uh, For homes, it depends. Sometimes it's um, foreign investment. Sometimes it's people coming in willing to buy the home with friends, which is something that actually Mayor Tory suggested, that maybe people need to start looking at buying detached homes and then splitting them up. Another thing that he suggested uh, was parents giving their children living inheritances. But I honestly think that you, you can't ask people of that. I don't, I don't think that's really a a fair ask, in my opinion. No. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. So, Jamie, thank you so much for the series that you have done. We can find that at globalnews.ca, and you've given you know some real texture to this with real-life stories about what it is like. And like you say, there's no real solution as to where it's going. Have they defined the middle class at all? You've mentioned the middle class a couple of times. We always hear that's yeah. disappearing. Do we know, you know <laughs> from what dollar value to what dollar value would be considered the middle class for a household? It's a- It's actually ridiculous. So the middle class, it's not really a real thing. People consider the middle class often consider themselves between 30 and 200,000. That's why I say middle class and upper middle class. But um, statistically, if you take um, Statistics Canada numbers, it's a little bit closer to that um, $66,000 range. But again, it's not a real defined thing because salaries are always changing. The median is always changing. So it's hard to say, but I think colloquially, when I when I refer to middle class or upper middle class, people can get, get a sense of what I'm trying to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've done a fantastic job. Jamie, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. All the best. Okay, you too. Bye. That's Jamie Marocker. And Jamie is a digital broadcast journalist with Global News. And that's why I said going into this, it makes you look at the grass is greener. We got a note from Mike saying, well, I mean, if, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen sort of thing, the heat being the cost and the kitchen being Toronto. And I think that is what a lot of people will ultimately do. But Jamie brought up the really good point in all of this. And it is maybe not rampant here in London, but it is coming. And you can see a number of different documentaries. Uh, one is Push. Um, that's a, a really good documentary on rising real estate prices. Again, it's called Push. And it's not the idea that we've got people who are looking for homes and, and there are so many people that, that are, are looking for the home and, and they're earning more money and so that's driving up real estate costs. It's not. It's the idea that you've got big corporations or people using these real estate buys as investments, that's that's the big deal. And it's the big corporations that now answer to shareholders. And those shareholders want more. And so you've got to find ways to drive up the rent. 
And while we do have rent controls around here, we've still seen rises in rent. Over time, if you want to push the rent up, it's going to push up. It is going to go up. And it's the lack of available properties because of the investors coming in. We have seen rules changed in other parts of the world that indicate you can't own a property that no one lives in just to hang on to it while the market rises so that you can flip it. You know, you have people buying something, not doing anything to it, waiting six years just because they have the disposable income to do it or because they're a corporation, and then they flip it for a massive profit. And then that's grown into companies that get involved in this. And once you've let that in, it's tough to get it out. So I don't know that that that's something that you know, that can be changed. But ultimately, you're going to have a lot of people who are fighting just to have enough rent money for their lives, not have any kind of nest egg to help them out later in life. It's it's something that's rising way high in the air, and what goes up must come down eventually. But we haven't hit the point at which it's slowed down in the up cycle just yet. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 